Hey everybody and welcome back to Stories with Stories. So today we're going to be talking for my world history class. We're going to be talking a little bit about the modernization of Japan. We're going to talk about what happened to bring Japan up into the modern world and how that impacted all of Asia as well as how that kind of changed the way in which we look at how this country was. So first we have to start in where Japan was. And Japan was in this place where they were in complete isolation. They basically didn't want people to know that they were there or that they existed. The idea with Japan's thought or Japan's uh, thought process with all of this was really simple. If nobody knows we're here, we're an island, we can kind of hide. And they did. They stayed back. They stayed out of everything. And they're actually going to have a guy named Takagua Aisha who is going to take the office of what's called a shogun. And he's going to take over, and that's the top military commander. And what he's going to do, he's going to bring all the lawlessness, all the chaos in Japan. He's going to end that. He's going to let the emperor live over there. He's going to live here, and they're going to have all this kind of go. He runs this, this system of a closed, centralized, feudal system in Japan. He runs it for you know quite some time. And he kind of just keeps passing it on to the next military leader within his organization. Here's where things start to get a little bit tricky and a little bit sketchy. Was that in 1637, he says, listen, we're not talking to the outside world. We're over this. And that philosophy stayed within Japan for 250 years where they stayed out of everybody else's business. As uh, there was economic growth, they did have this expansion for a little bit, but their samurai members were, became unhappy because, well, it's pretty simple. As a samurai member, you are expected to be a warrior. You can't be a warrior if you are not fighting. So they kind of felt that they had lost all their power and lost all their significance with it. All right, so let's move forward to the next part. So they're in this isolation. And they hear word about this opium war going on kind of over, you know, right next to them in China. And as they're going through this opium war, what's going to happen is that the Japanese, they realize that, like, hey, this idea of us staying away from everybody, this probably isn't going to work much longer. And because it's not going to work much longer, we kind of need, we need a little bit of help. So thankfully for the Japanese, a guy by the name of Matthew Perry is going to show up in Tokyo Bay. And he's going to be working for the United States. He's going to demand that all of their ports open to the people. They signed a treaty with the U.S. called the Treaty, the, excuse me, the Treaty of Kanagawa in 1854, and that basically says we're going to open the ports. It gives the United States that idea of extraterritoriality, as it does with other ones. It also leads into kind of some other criticisms and things like that of the power. But what ultimately happened is that they didn't know how to really handle having the Western world around. And in 1867, they're struggling. And so they're going to restore the emperor. And they restore the emperor to a guy called Muchihito. And he is going to move from the city of Kyoto to Tokyo, or now Tokyo. And he's going to take over the name of of Meiji, which is going to be the lightened one. So the Meiji Restoration comes in, and it's actually going to last for quite a long time. It's going to go from 1868 to 1619. And they had one really big goal. They wanted a rich country with a strong government. 
and a strong military. So they sent people all throughout the world to pick out the best ideas of everywhere else and take them for themselves, which is what we do as people. We steal the best ideas and call it our own and then kind of move forward. So first thing he has to do, he says, we need to restore and reform the government. So as they're restoring and reforming the government, he decides they're going to take the German system where they have a strong central government with an elected house and an appointed house and the emperor. They're going to use this Western bureaucracy where certain people are going to focus on some things and others are going to focus on other things and things of that nature. But the biggest thing they're going to do is we need to industrialize this nation. We need to make this nation as modern as possible as quickly as it can. So they set up a modern banking system. They built the railroads as quickly as they could. They improved the ports. They organized a telegraph system, a postal system, all these things. And then they're going to they're going to build factories and they're going to pass the factories off to families. The rich families buy these factories. These are families like Mitsubishi and Kawasaki. They're buying these factories so that they can build goods to give back to everybody else and they become you know these essential leaders through everything they're going to make some social changes as they're going through and that's going to give more people to build the nation give more people the style setup give them education to develop the new technology for the new generation for all of these things we're going to keep this moving as the nation of japan and it was just an amazing success. Japan is this success story of going from, you know, investing no money to investing millions and millions and millions of dollars. Going, you know, improving your economy in 10 years by quadruple, if not at least double. One of the biggest things that they had to their advantage compared to everywhere else in the world when they try to go through this, you know, transformation process is really simple. They have one culture in Japan. They isolated for 250 years. Everybody was just Japanese. There was no mix of cultures. It was you were Japanese and this was better for you. They they had one common culture, one language. They were able to take previous economic growth and push it forward. They were going to take new ideas from foreign nations like China and push that forward. Then Japan starts to get a little bit more confident and they realize that we have the makings of an empire. We have the makings of being Asia's best. And in 1894, they step out, they say, China, let's go. And they, China's like, hey, you're just little Japan. You've always kind of been our little brother. So they go in and Japan easily beats them in the first Sino-Japanese War easily beats them. And then they go to Russia and they go, Russia, mighty your turn. And again, the, the, the Japanese beat the Russians. This is the first time that an Asian power has humbled and humiliated a European nation. That's in 1905. And so now from all this, they're going to gain areas like Taiwan and Manchuria and uh, parts of kind of Western China over there. They're also going to get this place called Korea. Now, the Japanese rule in Korea, they ultimately treated, or they, they ruled Korea for 35 years, and they treated them like they were less than them. They did everything they could to uh, 
basically try to erase, erase Korean culture from the books. And there was a ton of resentment. But it also leads to Korea today having this Korean movement of wanting to be their own country, be their own nation together with each other. It gets so bad to the point where there's actually going to be the Japanese are going to crush peace non or peaceful protests with their weapons and destroy who they are and kill them on all levels. Anyways, that's where we're going to stop for today. Japan is now a world is not a world power necessarily, but they're a world player, and everybody needs to watch out for them in this imperialistic movement. That's going to take us into how Japan interacts with the rest of us when we come to places like Australia and other areas in the southeastern Pacific. Have a great rest of your day. I will talk to everybody soon. Goodbye.